0: I'd like to direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and this morning I'll be reading the first six verses. This is God's Word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. One day as Jesus was walking down the road. With his disciples, someone came running up to him and said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied saying, You know, foxes have holes to live in. Birds have nests to live in. But understand this, I'm homeless. Then, as they walked farther down the road, Jesus actually invited one of those standing by to come and follow him. And that person said, well, you know, I'd love to, but I need to take care of my dying father first. And Jesus said to that person, let the dead bury the dead. A little farther down the road, another person said to Jesus, you know, I really want to To be with you, I want to follow you, but I want to go home first and spend some time with my family. And Jesus said to that person, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now at first blush, Jesus' responses to those potential disciples sounds very harsh and uncaring. But when you really think about what Jesus is doing there and really understand what's going on, you realize that Jesus is driving home a crucial point about what discipleship is all about. What he's saying to these potential followers is, if you want to be my disciple, it's going to take a radical break with your former life. You can't just add discipleship to your life. You can't just schedule it in. It takes a radical transformation and a radical break with your past. The first seeker wasn't ready to put a relationship with Jesus Christ before his personal convenience and comfort. The second seeker wasn't ready to put a relationship with Jesus Christ before his social obligations. And the third seeker wasn't ready to put Jesus Christ before his own family. These seekers wanted to add Jesus to their already busy life. And Jesus said to them, No, in order to follow me, I must become your life. In our efforts to grow the church, we are often tempted to downplay the nature of real conversion. We are tempted to want to make it sound easy to become a Christian. To try to convince people that they can just readjust their lives a little bit to bring Jesus into it. But becoming a Christian isn't just a religious commitment. It's not just a change in worldview. It's not just a change in values or ethics. The Bible uses the most extreme language possible to talk about what happens when you go from being an unbeliever to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. For instance, Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible talks about it as death and resurrection. It's a radical transformation. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked what more he needed to do in order... To have eternal life. And Jesus said, sell everything you own and give it all to the poor and then come and follow me. And the young man turned away. Jesus said to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus came to him, saying, what more must I know? What more must I do? Really, even though he didn't say the words, you know that that's what his heart was saying. And Jesus said to him, unless one is born again, he cannot enter or even see the kingdom of God. Death, new birth, resurrection. That's what conversion is. It's a transformation from the center of our being. And that's what Peter's talking about in this passage. Conversion. A radical transformation. And I use the word radical in the most literal sense of the word. you know what the word radical comes from? The Latin root of that word means to the root. To the very core of our being. That's the kind of change that conversion is according to Scripture. And as we look at this passage, as Peter lays it out for us, what this new life looks like, we're going to see three different aspects of this conversion. What makes it so radical? What makes it so different? What makes us so different? And he lists three things. That due to our conversion, first of all, we have a new master. Secondly, we have new desires. And thirdly, we have a new standard to live by. Let's look at the first one. Peter points out that because of what Christ has done in our lives, we have a new master. Look at verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now this again is one of those difficult verses that Peter tends to throw at us. We looked at a difficult passage last week. Here again, commentators, scholars have a hard time understanding what Peter means here. What does it mean that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin? Obviously, I know many people who suffer. Not only do they not cease from sin, sometimes their suffering causes them to sin much worse. Now, it's true for believers as well as unbelievers. So what does he mean that those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin? Well, I think the key is to looking again. Usually when you're having trouble understanding a verse in Scripture, look at it in context Look at this one in context, and really, if you look at the beginning of, of verse 1, he says, since therefore Christ suffered. When you see the word therefore, you always want to say, well, what's that connecting me to? Where does that go back to in the passage before it? And so you go back into the, the passage we looked at last week, and it begins in verse 18 by saying, for Christ also suffered once for sins. So there's the suffering of Christ that Peter's alluding to in verse 1 of chapter 4, it's what he referred to in verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So specifically, he's talking about the suffering of Christ on the cross. When Christ allowed His sinless human life To be nailed to the cross when He volunteered to die in our place, to bear the wrath of God against our sins in our place. That suffering where He took our sin, our unrighteousness upon Himself so that we might become righteous by faith in His death and resurrection. And so it's that suffering that Peter's talking about. Since, therefore, Christ suffered on the cross... Since he died for us on the cross, he says, therefore, those who ever have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. Now let me talk a little bit about grammar here. I'm not a big fan of grammar too, so just be patient with me. In the original Greek, the Greek language is much more precise in its language than the English is. And in the Greek, there are tenses of the verbs that will tell you a lot about what the writer is saying. And the tense of the verse is what's called aorist there. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, the aorist tense in the Greek grammar means it was an event that took place in the past. It was completed, took place at one point in the past, but it has a continuing effect into the future, into the present into the future. So it's something that happened and was completed in the past, but the impact of it goes on beyond that time. For instance... Almost 30 years ago I was married. That marriage was a one-time event. It was over amazingly quickly. But it's had profound lasting effect upon my life. And so that's what aorist means. It happened in the past, but it has ongoing effect into the future. And so that's the, the tense of the verb that Peter uses here. Christ suffered In the past, he completed. He said as he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that work has impact all the way until he comes again. So the suffering there referred to at the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 4 is the suffering of Christ on the cross, his atoning death that paid for our sins. But then he says at the end of verse 1, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Interestingly, that word suffered is also aorist. It also is referring to something that happened in the past and has ongoing effect into the future. So, therefore, what Peter's referring to is the same suffering. Whoever also suffered in the past. And so, he's talking about the same event Christ's suffering is what he's referring to. Not our suffering today, but the suffering of Christ. It helps, I think, if you understand his meaning there and when he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you just use that phrase, suffered in the flesh, translate it, put it in there, the synonym died. For whoever has died has ceased from sin. So literally what Peter is saying, if you're following me here, Whoever has died with Christ on the cross has ceased from sin. I think properly understood, that's what that verse is saying. Whoever has died with Christ on the cross has ceased from sin. And the word ceased means to break with, to be done with, to be released from. It's the same thing that Peter said over in chapter 2. Remember this verse, chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of Christ, he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we might die to sin. So that we might break with sin. So that we might be released from sin and live to righteousness. Peter saying the same thing here in chapter four, verse one. You see, this is the mind of Christ. He says that we're to be armed with the mind of Christ on this issue. We are to think like Christ thinks about sin. And this, I cannot stress how important this is to your perspective on how you relate to sin in your life. That you died with Christ on the cross and therefore have broken with sin. It's the same thing that Paul was saying back in Romans 6. If you want to turn there with me. Romans chapter 6. At this point in the book of Romans, Paul has just gone into great detail to describe what the gospel is. What it means that Jesus has died for our sins. And that that's our only hope of salvation. That we cannot save ourselves by keeping the law because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so after describing how Christ has paid the price for our sins and has given us the gift of righteousness, then he says, he breaks into his argument here in verse 1 of Romans 6 and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He understands how the sinful human mind thinks. If all my sins are paid for, if Christ died for all my past sins, my present sins and my future sins, then I've got a blank check i can live any way i want to live i can just go out and sin to the to the utmost of my desires because christ died for all those sins and doesn't that glorify god when all these sins get forgiven so why not just keep sinning paul understands how we think and so he says in verse 2 by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it you see what he's saying you don't understand If you're a disciple of Christ, you died with Christ on the cross. And you were raised with Him to new life. You're not that old person anymore that lives for sin. You now live for righteousness. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? from sin. He's saying the same thing Peter's saying. If you died with Christ and were raised with him to new life, then you have died to sin. You have been released from sin. You have broken with sin. He wants us to understand. He wants us to think about ourselves as being fundamentally different from unbelievers. At the very core of who we are, we are fundamentally different from unbelievers. See, that's part of the problem with us as believers. Sometimes we think of ourselves just like every unbeliever on the block. They struggle with sin. They fall in sin. We compare ourselves to them and we think, well, if they struggle, you know, why shouldn't I struggle? And Paul and Peter would say, no, don't you understand? You have died with Christ. You've been raised a new creature in Christ. You no longer are bound to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. And then he goes on at the end of this passage. Look down at verse 11 Paul in, in Romans 6. Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The old King James says, Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves dead to sin. You died with Christ. You're no longer under its mastery. You have a new master. You know, sin was a master. Remember what that was like. Sin was your Lord. Sin was your Savior. It guided and directed what you wanted, what you did in your life. And it was an abusive relationship. Sin kept making all these wonderful promises. And then breaking them. Never providing, never fulfilling, never satisfying. And yet we kept running back for more. I remember when I used to break up with girlfriends. I'd ask my buddies in the locker room, how do I do this? You know, I I was kind of a non-confrontative guy. I didn't want to make it too hard on me. you know, try to ease them out of the relationship. And the guys in the locker room would always say, don't do it, man. Break it off clean. Just like pulling the Band-Aid off, do it quick. And I knew that from experience. Because if you try to ease yourself out of a relationship, it just ends up just like that Band-Aid. It's a lot more painful and it just lasts a lot longer. That's because we're talking about the nature of an exclusive relationship. Generally speaking, girlfriends don't like it when you have three other girlfriends. And when I got married, I didn't just drop a girlfriend or two and keep two or three. I committed myself to one woman. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, that's what conversion is. Did you, you used to live for sin. You were enslaved to sin. Sin was your master. But if you put your faith in Christ, you died with Christ at the cross. The old self died. And you were raised again to new life. And in that new life, You serve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is your Master. And you have all allegiance to Him as your Lord. That's how you're to think about yourself. It's crucial. It's self-image stuff. How do you think about yourself? You're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Secondly, Peter says, Not only do you have a new Master, but you have new desires. It's not just an external change, it's an internal change. You have new desires. Verse 2, we have ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Remember that passage we read a little while ago from Ezekiel, chapter 11, where it says that the Lord promises that for his people he would take out of their chest that heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh take out of us a heart that is dead and unresponsive to god and replace it with a heart that loves god that seeks god that wants to know god and wants to serve god wants to please god that's ezekiel talking about conversion in john 1st john chapter 3 verse 9 John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, that John's not saying that Christians don't sin. What he's saying is that you cannot continue to live under the domination and mastery of sin because you've been born again, because you've been given a new heart, because you have new desires, you now see sin for what it is and you see righteousness for what it is in God's perspective. Peter goes on in verse 3 to say, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You see, that's an enlightened perspective. That's what a new heart will say to you. It says, it looks back at that life of sin and says, oh, what a waste. Oh, that I might have known Christ earlier. All that I might have been converted earlier so I might not have wasted so much of my life in sin because sin is only wasteful and destructive. Peter goes on to describe how the world, that's what he means by the Gentiles, those outside the kingdom, how the world wants to live. He says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Isn't it interesting how little human nature has changed in 2,000 years? Sounds like Peter's been to Florida coast at spring break or maybe in Beaver Canyon on a fall weekend night. All the terms that Peter uses here to describe the ways of the world refer to partying, drunkenness, and sexual immorality. And isn't that still the holy grail of the world? Seeking to find their pleasure in those areas through sin. But with new eyes and a new heart, we see that those selfish indulgences indulgences of the past are wasted time and destructive to us and everyone around us. And we're like that prodigal son who had that moment of clear-headedness, that moment of realization by the grace of God to look at what he was eating and say, wait a minute, this is pig slop. Why am I eating this? Only by the grace of God do our eyes open to see that. We're given a new desire, a desire to hate sin the way God hates it and to love righteousness the way he loves it. This is what it refers to when it talks about the life of Moses. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. It's describing Moses' life. And we know that Moses was given a new heart, and new desires, because it says this about him in Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refused all the wealth and riches and pleasures of Pharaoh's kingdom and court, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, Moses understood that the real pleasures in life are the pleasures of the kingdom, the pleasures of obedience, the pleasures of the church, the pleasures of ministry, the pleasures of serving Christ The pleasures of becoming like Christ. This is real wealth. This is real pleasure. These things last and grow greater through eternity instead of turning to dust and blowing away. By faith in Christ, we now see that faithfulness in marriage or faithfulness in celibacy is a far greater treasure than living for lust. By faith, we now see that Christian fellowship in the church is far superior to beer party fellowship. By faith, we have found that worship of the true God is the greatest natural high or supernatural high that you can experience in this life. That the worship of the true God is better than all the idolatries that the world has to offer. I once had a conversation with a Christian brother, and we were talking about the problem of pornography in the church. So many Christian men that struggle with pornography. And I made the comment to my Christian brother, I said, if pornography is such a big problem among Christian men in the church, how in the world does the world deal with it? How how big of a problem is it for unbelievers? And his response to me was, they don't see it as a problem. And I thought that's right. Largely speaking, they don't see it as a problem. That's their pleasure. That's their idol. That's where they're seeking their reward. We have a new master. And that new master has given us a new heart with new desires so that we now live, Peter says, by a new standard. We live under a higher judgment. There are two evaluations or reviews in life that we have to face. Judgment by men or judgment by God. Verse 4, Peter refers to the judgment by men, the judgment in the flesh. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They try you, they judge you, they sentence you, and they reject you. Because you do not live by their desires, by their code. You don't live for their treasures. You see, seeing ourselves with the mind of Christ and understanding our new nature and our new desires helps us to understand why unbelievers around us are going to reject us and mock us. It's because they don't have the mind of Christ and they don't have the desires of the kingdom. And they will judge us and they will reject us. But in verse 5... Peter says, keep that in perspective. He says, he points again to judgment day. How often has he done that already in this letter? He's pointing us back to judgment day. Jesus Christ is coming again and he will be seated on the throne and we will all stand before him. He says in verse 5, but they, those who mock you, reject you, malign you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready to judge. That's an ominous warning. In other words, he's already provided for salvation. He's already died on the cross. His work of salvation is complete. All that remains is for him to come again, to receive his people to himself, and to sit upon his judgment throne over all mankind. And that is our confidence, because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin is paid for. We wear the righteousness of Christ. It's the confidence of the book of Psalms. How many times in the book of Psalms does the psalmist point us to judgment day? To say, you're going to suffer in this life. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be rejected. There are going to be enemies out to get you. That's The the book of Psalms is plainly clear about that. Life in this fallen world among unbelievers, among unregenerate people is going to be very difficult. They're going to malign you. They're going to slander you. They're going to persecute you. But never forget this. God is your judge and their judge. Your hope is in the righteousness of Christ. They will be punished. Justice will be perfectly carried out. And that is our hope. That is our confidence. That's why he says in verse 6, For this, and by this there he's referring to the coming judgment of God, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now there he's not talking about preaching the gospel to dead people or preaching to corpses like I said last week. He's talking about the gospel was preached in the past to people who were alive then, heard the gospel, believed the gospel, were saved by the gospel... And now they are dead. And this was an important issue for Christians in the first century because their brothers and sisters in Christ were dying. And and Peter wants to reassure them they believed the gospel, they received the gospel. And now, even though they're dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Or more literally, he says, though judged according to men, that they may live in the spirit according to God. That's our confidence. Whose judgment are you more concerned about? The judgment of men or the judgment of God? Do you fear men or do you fear the Lord? Is your hope in Christ or is your hope in the flesh? We're talking about conversion. A change, a transformation from the very root of who you are that is a work of grace, a supernatural work of grace of the Holy Spirit. And it results in us dying to sin more and more and living to righteousness. Augustine, the great church father, was saved himself from what the fourth century would have called the party lifestyle. He was known for drunkenness and carousing and sleeping with women. and He had a couple of concubines during his life. He had an illegitimate son. God saved him out of that drunkenness and immorality and partying that Peter described. And after he was converted, after he walked with the Christ for a while, he went back to his hometown and off down the street in the distance, he saw one of his old girlfriends and she saw him and her eyes lit up and she started running towards Augustine and she started shouting to him, Augustine, Augustine, it's me! And Augustine Augustine walked away from her and said, Yes, but it's no longer me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. Father, we do not claim conversion as though it's anything we have done. It was a sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. When we were still sinners, while we were still hostile to you, you invaded our lives, you sent your spirit into our hearts, you took out our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh that we might even want to know you, let alone seek after you and understand the gospel and and see Christ crucified and believe on him and, and turn from our sins and follow him as one of his disciples. Lord, that's all a work of your grace. Thank you. And now it's our privilege to worship you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.